Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Amen. Good morning, church. How is everybody? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And uh, the title for this morning is Planted, Cultivated, and Expected to Bear Fruit. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus gave um, to some Pharisees about a vineyard. And we're continuing on in our series on the life and times of Jesus. And we are now, as we continue in this series, in the four-day period between Palm Sunday, which is the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, and Good Friday, which is Passover and when Jesus went to the cross. And if you remember, as we've been going along, Palm Sunday happened on Sunday. Yeah, it's kind of right in the name there. And then the immediate event that happened the next day was the cleansing of the temple that happened on Monday. And then on Tuesday began the challenges to Jesus as to whether or not he is or not the Messiah, and that happened on Tuesday. And that's where we are now, within that time of challenging. And this is a continuation of the text we looked at last week. So it's just following right along with it. If you remember, Jesus was in the temple on Tuesday, went back into the temple. He was teaching and preaching the gospel there. The religious leaders came to him to challenge him. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they came challenging him on what authority he has to do and say the things that he is doing and saying. And ultimately, if you remember back to last week, what did he do? He refused to answer them because he'd already told them, right? He'd told them plenty of times in many different ways, and they're not getting it on what authority he has and by what authority he's doing all these things. And the whole point is we boiled it down last week is that he had spoken many times, he had been clear, they refused to listen, and so he he, he stopped telling them, right? Instead, what he does, and we looked at the first one of these last week, instead what he does, he gives a series of parables now to illustrate the condition and the hardness of their heart and to explain the consequences of what's going to happen as they are rejecting him. And last week, we looked at that first of those parables. You remember that? That Jesus gave a parable of the two sons. They were both sent out to work in the field. And one of them said, I'm going to go for sure. Yeah, dad, I'll I'll go and work in the field. He was sent by his father. He said, yeah, I'm going to go work in the field. But he never went. The other son said, nah, I don't think I'm going to go work in the field today, but ultimately felt bad about it and went. And the question was, which one did the will of the father? And the answer was, of course, the one that went. Regardless of what he said, it was the one that went. And the whole point of that was that professing to belong to God in just mere words is of no use if there is no real action, obedience, and no real following him, right? And we looked at scriptures like Jesus saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Or James warning us to prove ourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers of the word that delude ourselves. So if you missed that, that was last week. 
You can get that on iTunes or on our website or one of those places. This week, we pick up with the exact same scene. He gives the first parable, and then immediately he gives the second parable. So we're in the same scene. Jesus is standing before these religious leaders, and they have challenged him on his authority. This is just the second parable that Jesus now gives, again, pointing out the hardness of their heart and pointing out the consequences of their rejection. Now, we need to keep in mind that while these events and while these parables have an immediate context, and they do, they have an immediate context of the nation of Israel and its leadership. And while that's true, it also has spiritual parallels for us, the church, meaning it can be applied to us. So it was originally intended and spoken to them, but there are lessons and warnings as we will see in this for us as well. So let's go ahead and begin in Matthew chapter 21. We'll begin in verse 33. Before we do that, let's pray real quick. Father, as we open your word, we come and we open our hearts and lay them bare before you. We ask you to take your word now by the power of your Holy Spirit and to minister to us, to point out the things in our lives that need to go, to show us the things that need to come into our lives. Lord, would you speak, change us, mold us, guide us, lead us, convict us where conviction is needed, give us the boldness to deal with the things that we need to deal with, And in Jesus' name, Lord, speak to us. We've come to meet with you. Speak to us through your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look at verse 33. And it tells us right there, this is the second of those parables. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. And he put a wall around it. He dug in at a wine press. And he built a tower. And then he rented it out to wine growers, and he went on a journey. And when it was harvest time, he sent servants or slaves to those wine growers to receive his produce. So now Jesus is giving this parable, and he says, there was this this guy, this landowner, and he had this beautiful piece of land. He built this beautiful vineyard. He took very good care of it. He put a wall around it. He planted the, the, the vineyard in there. He, he built a tower there. And then he found these tenant farmers, the, these guys that were going to take care of it for him. And he left on a journey. And they were to, you know, of course, raise the grapes and the produce and and whatever. And then at a certain point, he would send his servants over there to collect some, and that would, you know, of course, pay the rent. Now, what we need to know about this parable is that it's not new to them. This parable is based on a well-known Old Testament passage from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, right? Where Isaiah is pointing out the hardness of heart the corruption, and the lack of fruit of the people of his day. So the point of that is, this would have been a very, very well-known story, Bible parable, that these guys would have known. The two parables, as we'll see in just a minute as we'll look at some of Isaiah chapter 5, they're almost identical. So by Jesus giving this parable, we'll look at it in a minute, but, but the point for now is by Jesus giving this, 
they would have had something to relate to and they would have known exactly what Jesus is getting at when he's talking about their corruption and their fruitlessness when he's talking about these religious leaders because he's referring to a passage that they would have known very well and is almost identical to this particular parable. Now, we want to look at who the players are that are represented in this parable. So verse 33 begins out telling us that there's this landowner. He plants his vineyard, he puts a wall around it, he digs a wine press in and he builds a tower. The landowner represents God the Father. So if you're taking notes, the landowner represents God the Father because God the Father is what? The ultimate owner of everything, isn't he? He's the ultimate owner. He owns it all. Anything that we have is merely on loan from him, isn't it? Job said it well when he said, naked I came into this world and naked I will leave, meaning I'm not taking anything with me and anything that I have now belongs to God, right? So he, God the Father, planted a vineyard and the vineyard represents the nation of Israel here. He says the landowner planted it. He says he put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it and he built a tower. Now, now listen to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and you'll see the parallel. They'll come up on your screen. It says, my well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Now listen to this. He dug it all around, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest of vines, built a tower in the middle of it, and he hewn out a wine vat, and then he expected it to produce good grapes. Almost identical to the parable that Jesus is giving to these guys. They would have known it very well. Now here's the point. God the Father, and this is where we get our title for the message from and where we're going to draw our application from later. So so grab a hold of this. God the Father planted them. He cultivated them. He protected them. And He expected fruit from His people. That's where we're going to go with this. Number one, He planted them. So since we're talking about the nation of Israel, in a very literal way, the nation of Israel was created by God. I don't mean just created as people. The nation itself was created in that God took Abraham and he promised him, took him away from his family and says, I'm going to make you a nation. And that promise then was echoed down to Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. And he had 12 sons, which became the nation of Israel. Their descendants became the nation of Israel. So in a very real way, God created, established, and planted the nation of Israel. Not only did he create them, but he also planted them in the land. That's what we do with crops, right? We plant them in the land. He planted them in the land. That is that God promised to Abraham this land, the land of Israel, to to Isaac, to Jacob, and to those descendants. The land was promised. And through Joshua, he gave them possession of the land. And at that point, they are now planted in the land. He then cultivated, meaning he cared for and he loved and he provided for meaning that he placed them in a land, and this is the Bible terminology, flowing with milk and honey, right? And the promise was given to them. 
if you follow me, don't turn away and don't go to other gods, the promise throughout the whole of, of the Old Testament, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, is that if you follow me, I'll take care of you. I'll bring rain when it's supposed to rain. You'll have plenty of crops. He even says, you can take an entire year off every six years. You're to take the seventh year off and I'll provide so much on that sixth year that you'll have fruit into the ninth year. So, so he cared for, he cultivated, he took care of. He also protected. That's where in verse 33 it says, he built a wall around and he built a tower in the middle of. The point was their protection. God protected Israel as long as they followed him. And that was also part of the covenant of coming into the land. As long as they followed him, God promised to drive their enemies out before them and to let them live secure in the land. And when it says that he built a tower in the vineyard, this speaks of extravagance. This speaks of an extravagance an extreme care and protection. Because typically what would happen is if you owned a plot of land that you were farming, whether it be a vineyard or you had wheat or whatever your crops were, you would build a small lean-to shack somewhere in the middle of it and you would hire a security guard to sit in that shack when you're not farming so that they could guard your field. Because why? People would come and steal your crops and, and mess with it. But he's saying, I didn't build you a little shack. I built a a tower. And so this is representative of the fact that that God is to be, and we see this terminology throughout the Old Testament, He is to be the strong tower for the nation of Israel. He is to be their protection. But then finally, with all of that planting, all that cultivating, all that protection, meaning all of that care, they were supposed to do what? Bear fruit. There was supposed to be something coming from that. And that's the whole point of saying that he put in a wine press and a wine vat, it says in, in uh, Mark's gospel. We don't put in a wine press and a wine vat unless you think there's going to be some fruit, right? So he expected them to bear fruit. Now, what was the fruit that was expected of the nation of Israel? Very, very explicit in the Old Testament what their fruit was to be. And that is that they were to shine God's light as the people of God to the godless nations around them. And we see it over and over again. And as you look through, I'm doing my devotions, I'm in Leviticus and and Deuteronomy right now, as you get into those things, you see that over and over, these rules, these laws, and these things that God has set up was so that they would be a light, they would be set apart, they would be different, and therefore be able to shine their light to the nations around them. Listen to Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, this is God speaking, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant, speaking to the nation of Israel, to raise you up as the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved one of Israel. Listen to this. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So the fruit that Israel was to bear was supposed to be a physical tangible representative of God to the nations, right? Meaning that people that wanted to know and understand the true and living God 
should be able to look at Israel to see that. They should be able to look at his love toward them, his care for them, his character. He should be able to see it in the people. His compassion should be reflected in the people. How he leads and guides, people should be able to look at the nation of Israel to see that. His plans and purposes and anything that God has said was supposed to be there encapsulated in the people of Israel as a light to the nations so that the people, the godless nations around them could look to them to see God. They were to be able to look at the nation of Israel and to get that from them. That was the fruit that was expected of them. The final thing that we see there in verse 33 is that he rented out the vineyard to vine growers. Now this is representative of the religious leaders. Vine growers do what? They're the tenant farmers who are in charge of caring for the vineyard. Well, these priests and Pharisees that are now standing right before Jesus with this challenge that he's giving this parable to are supposed to be the ones caring for and nurturing the vineyard, God's people, the nation of Israel, and they're supposed to be leading them closer to God. Yet, what's the problem? They're corrupt, they're selfish, they're greedy, and they're false teachers. Now see if we don't see that in our parable going forward. Verse 34, And when the harvest time came, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive produce. They're supposed to be fruitful. Verse 35. The vine growers took his slaves, and he beat one, and he killed another, and he stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. So now we have a series of servants being sent from the landowner, represented by God the Father, being sent to these corrupt religious vine growers. And they are supposed to come and receive a portion of the fruit that belongs to the master, right? That's the whole point here. But the servants are beaten and stoned and killed. Now here's our last of our representations. And that is the servants represent the Old Testament prophets. The servants represent the Old Testament prophets. And as we look at history, when the nation of Israel would go astray, God would raise up godly leaders, anointed by God and sent with his message. And that was the prophets, right? Guys like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. And the job of these prophets was to point out and to warn the people that they have walked away from God and to try to steer them back to God. That was the whole point of these prophets, to get them to produce fruit, right? So they go to collect fruit, but in many cases, the prophets were mistreated, beaten, killed, and they were done so by these guys' grandfathers. These guys' ancestors were the ones that took and mistreated these prophets. For example, Isaiah was sawn in half by Manasseh. Amos was tortured and killed by the priest at Bethel. Zechariah was killed in the temple by Joash. Habakkuk 
Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other prophets were all killed by the very people that they were trying to reach, the Jewish people. And so Jesus says then in Matthew chapter 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wing and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Jesus says, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets. You've stoned those who have sent to you. I've sent to you prophet after prophet in an effort to turn your hard-heartedness back to God. But you've rejected them and you've killed them. Now, the point is to show the patience and the perseverance and the love of God in how many times he reached out to these people. And then, in a final effort to reach these people, we see that the master sends the most precious thing he has, his son. Verse 37. After sending all of these other servants, it says there in verse 37, but afterwards he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, I want to read this from Mark's gospel, because I think it gives a good progression here. Listen to it from Mark's gospel. It'll come up on the screen. It says of the first servant, they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another one. And they killed him. And so with many others, beating some and killing others, and then listen to this, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all. Now, what this boils down to, and the point that Jesus is making for these guys, is what more could be done for them? What more was there to do? All options have been exhausted. He's saying the most precious thing that could be sent was sent the son. Look at verse 38. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Out of selfish ambition, the vine growers, who represent these religious leaders, kill the beloved son. And of course, in the parable, the son is who? Jesus. And Jesus is telling them of how they are rejecting him, the final one sent by the father, the most precious one with nothing left to sin, the final one being sent by the father has been sent to them and he's telling of the way he's going to suffer at their hands. And in verse 39, it says, they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And three days after Jesus gives this parable, he will be taken outside of the city of Jerusalem and hung on a cross and killed. Now, here's something interesting. Verse 40, 
Jesus asks the question, what then should be done? He gives the parable of the vineyard and he goes, well, what should happen in this parable? Verse 40. Then, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? You see what's going on here? He's now asking these Pharisees, I just gave you this parable about these vine growers. What do you think the vine, the, the vineyard owner should do? Their answer, verse 41, they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched inn and will rent the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. That was the answer of the priest and the Pharisees. That those wretches should be done in and it should be given to somebody that's going to bear fruit with it. So, so they're kind of like, Jesus comes to them and says, okay guys, what do you think? If this was your vineyard, what would you do? Well, I'd bring those wretches to an end and then I'd give it to somebody else. And Jesus is pointing out here that that is exactly the position they have placed God the Father in. And Jesus is now pointing out that He is the Son and that what they said should happen is exactly what's going to happen. And as we're about to see, the kingdom, its work, and the privilege of being the light of God in the world is now going to be taken from them and given to another. In verse 42, Jesus explains that He is the Messiah. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read the Scripture? The stone which the builder rejected became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in his eyes. This is quoting a messianic Psalm 118. So, so in so do, doing, Jesus is saying and claiming to be the Messiah and pointing out that they're rejecting him. And now, as we look at this parable, one thing has to be understood and, and has to be seen. As we look at what Jesus is doing with with these religious leaders right before him. And he's pointing out the incredible patience, perseverance, and here's an old school Bible word, long-suffering of God. I like that word, long-suffering. It's like the old King James style. The patience, the perseverance, and the long-suffering of God that he had with his people. Now, here's where we need to notice something. Because sometimes people get hung up on and even reject the Bible because it says things about hell, because it talks about God's punishment, because it talks about God's wrath and God's judgment. And people will say things like this, how do you square God's judgment with Him being a loving God? This parable explains that if you follow the progression of it. Listen to the progression of it. God planted them, meaning that he, he gave them life. God cared and cultivated, meaning that He loves them and He's taking care of them. God protected them, meaning that He is their strong tower. God gave them opportunity to be fruitful, meaning that through Him they could have a meaning and a purpose for their life that they could find nowhere else. And when they rejected Him, He didn't give up on them, did He? He sent prophet after prophet after prophet, 
carrying his word in the hope of turning them back to him. And when they rejected and killed them, he still didn't give up on them. He sent the most precious thing that he could possibly send, his son. And they still rejected him. So the question becomes then, doesn't it? What more could be done? The whole point of the parable is, what more could be given? What more was there to give? Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He gave you his son. What more could be given? What more do you need? And the point of this whole thing is that everything has been done. Everything possible has been done. That God is gracious and God is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. You see the, the parallel that he's drawing with this parable is what more could be done? 1 John 4, 9, by this the love of God was manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. The whole point is what more could be done? Now remember, he's referencing this Old Testament um, passage from Isaiah and, and it's typically called the song God's the song of God's vineyard and that's the exact point that God is making in the song of God's vineyard is what more could possibly done be done for you look at verse 4 it'll come up here on your screen what more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it why then when I expected it to produce good grapes did it produce worthless you see, Jesus is referencing, they know this passage. This is the answer to, to those that are struggling with a righteous God bringing a final judgment. The answer is, what more can he do? What more is required of him? He's given you everything. Even the priests and Pharisees, when they're asked what should happen, they said, these wretches should be brought to a wretched end and this vineyard should be given to somebody producing the fruit of it. And that's the exact consequence that now comes. Look at verse 43. Jesus speaking says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Now remember, what is the fruit that Israel was supposed to be producing? They were supposed to be shining God's light to the nations, right? God's people shining God's light. That means that people were supposed to be able to look at Israel, to look at their leaders and understand God's love, His character, His compassion, His protection, His leading, His guiding, His plans, His purposes. They were to be able to look at Israel and to learn of all that God had taught. Israel was to be a physical, tangible representation of God to the nations around them. But they failed to be fruitful in that calling. And don't miss this. Because of that, they lost the privilege then of being used by God for His kingdom purposes. 
meaning that Israel ceased then to be the primary way by which God shined his light to the world. And that was, as the parable says, now given to somebody else. That calling and that privilege has now been given to the church, correct? Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Speaking of Christians, because it says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. But listen to what he says about believers now. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and what? And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, I need to clarify something just so that that nobody gets the wrong idea here. This is not replacement theology. This is not replacement theology. There is bad Bible teaching out there today that says that God has completely rejected Israel and forsaken them and they have no more favor with him. And that all of the promises and blessings that belong to Israel have now been transformed or transferred to the church. That is not accurate. God is not done with Israel. He still loves Israel and there will be a restoration of the Jewish people. You need to read Romans chapter 11 because that's what the whole chapters are about. But Israel has come under the judgment of God because of their rejection of Christ. And that's what this parable is about. They came under a physical judgment, the destruction of Jerusalem and and the temple in 70 AD and the expulsion from the land. They came under a spiritual judgment which is this spiritual blindness and a partial hardening of the heart that we see in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and a loss of calling. And that's what we're talking about in this parable, a loss of calling, meaning the privilege and the calling of being God's primary way of reaching the world has been removed to, from them and given to the church. God has not completely done away with Israel, but because they failed in their calling, it has been transferred to the church. Now, I want to draw our final application from that as we we draw down here on the fact that God has taken a calling away from the fruitless and given it to others in the hope that they would bear fruit. And we want to see, as I said, that there is a personal application here. When people who are supposed to be the people of God fail to be fruitful, God's calling goes to somebody else. When the nation of Israel ceased to be the light that they were supposed to be and they became corrupt, God built the church and He used them. And that is true of us personally and on a personal level. God has chosen you, right? Planted. He's saved you. If you're a born-again believer, you've surrendered your life to Him, confessed your sins, you have been saved by Him. He has planted you. He has given a calling 
to your life. He desires to cultivate and transform you by the power of His Holy Spirit, but for a purpose, right? That we would go and bear fruit. We have that same calling. We have that same God that's willing to work on us to transform us. We have that same God that is still a strong tower for us, but we have the calling that we are to go and bear fruit. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 15. He said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. He goes on in verse 16 to say, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And notice this, And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. He said, I planted you guys, but I planted you for a purpose, that you would be fruitful. And a verse that we looked at last week was Ephesians 2.10. Look at what it says. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You have a calling on your life. And Jesus also told us, to let our light shine before men in such a way that the world around us would see and glorify our Father in heaven. That calling now belongs to you, church. And here's the point, and here's the application for us. God's purposes and God's plans will not fail. He will accomplish what He intends to accomplish. But, If we refuse the calling, if we refuse to get involved in being that light to the world, He will use someone else. Each one of us have a calling on our life. And His plan won't fail. What He wants to accomplish, He will accomplish. He would like to do it through you. He loves to use His people. Not because we're so wonderful, but because He loves us and wants to work with us. God would rather work through us than independent of us, and we see that through the whole of the Scripture. But when we fail to step into that calling, and your calling is different than my calling, and every one of us have a different place where God would lead and guide us and use us, and yours is different than mine, and yours is different than the person next to you. And when we we fail to step into that, you know what He's going to do? He's going to go to somebody that will because his purposes won't fail. And here's what happens. We then miss out. We miss out on the blessing of being part of building his kingdom. He doesn't need us, but we're given the blessing and the great purpose and meaning for our life to get involved with the mission that Christ is on in this world. And when we refuse to do that, he will use somebody else. If he wants to reach your neighbor, is he going to reach him? Absolutely. And if he can't do it through you, he's going to do it through somebody else. Why not you? Because when we join God in his work, there is then given to our life a purpose and a meaning that you can't find anywhere in this world. And I don't want to miss that. And I don't want you to miss that either. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we ask forgiveness for any time that we have failed to see that that is your plan and purpose. That you want to work through us, not independent of us. And it's not because we're so wonderful or that we have so much to offer, but it's because you love us and you desire to work through us and you desire to spend that time with us and you desire to prepare us for that work and you desire us to have the joy that comes with working with you and you desire us to have the joy of knowing that we have affected lives for all eternity by just being willing. Lord, give us that impression and that that understanding as a church. Lord, every single one of us have a calling on our life from you. God forbid that we wouldn't stop step into that. That we would be the clog in the system that you would have to go look for someone else usable because we were unwilling. Lord, may that never be. So Lord, as we sit here now, renew that calling in our heart and remind us that it's your love that wants to work through us and that it is a joy, it is a privilege. Lord, as we worship you, fill this place and minister to our hearts now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.